We are introducing this morning an initiative that, that you may already have heard about because uh, many uh, have been diligently preparing for this for, uh, behind the scenes for nearly half a year now. Uh, and, uh, you know, you may have heard murmurings, hummings, vibrations. Uh, I don't know. But uh, it's called Vision Next. And uh, what is Vision Next? I'm glad that you asked that question. Vision Next is a three-year intentional generosity initiative, a journey of faith that will enable us in time to acquire either uh, a building to renovate, which would be our first choice to fulfill our mission in this community, or secondly, acreage on which to build in the future. And uh, so that's, that's where we're headed. I'm not going to provide a bunch of details this morning other than what's on the, the insert in your program. Um, there are informational meetings coming up, and uh, you will be invited to one of those uh, if you are uh, on our, uh, in our database. If you haven't filled out a connection card, if you're still hiding from us, uh, you probably won't get invited. But if you'd like to be invited, make sure that we have your information. And, and then if you don't get invited, don't get offended. It was just an administrative oversight. We want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to know uh, details and then be able to answer, ask, ask and have questions answered uh, about this process. Well, let me just answer this question. Why do we want to do this? Three basic reasons. Uh, we believe as uh, the leadership of LifePoint Church that continuing to rent or to lease for the long term does not represent our best stewardship of the resources that God provides, uh, just as that would be true in, in our individual lives and in our family uh, economy. It's true for us as a church. And uh, secondly, we, as much as we have a, a, a really outstanding, enviable relationship with the school here, with the administration, with the faculty, with the school district, um, we realize that uh, our tenancy here probably isn't going to last forever. There's going to come a day when they're going to say, uh, someone else would like to use the building. You've been here for nine years. Uh, sayonara. Um, who knows, but uh, we're, we're aware of uh, our shelf life. And then third, and you may know this, that Thurston County, is that a bad choice of words, <laughs> shelf life? I know I got one. <laughs> you may be aware that Thurston County is slated over the next decade, decade and a half to two decades for immense growth, uh, residential growth, uh, commercial growth, and uh, because of that, well, and let me add that, that they're saying that most of that's going to be absorbed by Lacey. And we're a Lacey church. That's kind of a funny term too, a Lacey church, isn't it? <laughs> you ever think about that? But here's the reality. Uh, as we've looked around at various properties and land and so forth, uh, land and buildings are limited in Lacey, and even in the urban annex area, in reasonable places to put a church, um, land is is limited, and uh, vacant buildings large enough to host a church are uh, at a minimum. Uh, so, with developers coming in, 
land and buildings are being snatched up for residential, commercial, and so forth. So there's a sense of urgency that we have. Uh, and, and we feel that, that now is the responsible time. Now is the, now is the appointed time to move forward in faith. So as I said, you're going to be hearing much more about this in the coming days and weeks. I hope you'll read through this uh, little half-sheet flyer. But if you just flip that over to the back side uh, of the flyer, at the bottom you'll see a, a line that says what your involvement looks like. And you'll see three words there, prayerful, practical, and financial. And uh, we are very conscious uh, that prayer comes first uh, in this. Prayer lays the foundation for this. Prayer provides, as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, the air cover for this. And uh, I'd like to introduce Freddie and Robin Williams this morning. Freddie is one of our elders, and uh, they're leading the prayer uh, charge uh, as a part of this uh, initiative. And uh, they're going to share with you about a 40 days of prayer uh, calendar that's also in your program this morning. For those of you who don't know us, I'm Robin. I'm Freddie. (laughs) And we're here to talk about the 40 days of prayer. As we embark on the Vision Next campaign, we know that prayer has to be the foundation on which we build. It is through prayer that we will better know God's will for LifePoint Church. And one of the desired outcomes for the Vision Next campaign is for LifePoint Church to be known as a house of prayer. For the next 40 days, we're asking you to begin praying in a bigger way. Starting February 11th and continuing for the next 40 days, we're asking you to pray for LifePoint Church, for the Vision Next campaign, and for God's leading in what he would have you to do. To help accomplish this, we've published a 40 days of prayer, 40 days of prayer, pray, pray, 40 days of prayer calendar. Do I look like Vanna White? Each day we'll have a prayer prompt to give you a place to start. Along with the daily prayer on the calendar, we are asking you to pray daily for LifePoint Church and the Vision Next campaign. And something I forgot to mention in their first service, they'll, on, on LifePoint community, the Facebook page, there's going to be a daily devotional. Go there, look at that, read it, be inspired by it, and remember to pray for it. We're also asking you to pray what can be your part in this journey, because this is a journey we're all on together. In addition to the prayer calendars, we have some wristbands. Most of you are probably sitting on them. If you haven't, put it, please put it on. Very good. Thank you very much. But we have extras. If you happen to break yours or whatever, we have extras, so come and see us. The 40 days of prayer will culminate in 24 hours of prayer and fasting starting at 6 p.m. on March 23rd and ending 6 p.m. March 24th. We'll give you more information as time grows closer. Just remember, as you pray, prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Thank you. Coordinators of prayer and humor. Well, before we dive into the Bible this morning, I just want to share one more thing with you, which is um, a graph that was given to the pastors and elders this week by our treasurer, Dave Block, I was tremendously encouraged by it. I know that you will be too. Uh, There it is. It's uh, our giving for calendar years 2013 through 2017. And God has just blessed uh, in a significant way. I'm very excited about that. And uh, go to the next slide. 80% increase over 2013. Uh, So good Good, good stuff. Thank you, God. Thank you, LifePoint, for your faithfulness 
And uh, God, has, uh, God has been very good to us. I hope you're encouraged. You can applaud. Well, as encouraging as the graph really is, uh, when you look at the financial goals that we have for this campaign, uh, you may still be asking the question, how will we get from where we are to that, to where we've never been? Uh, and the candid answer is this, that it's going to take significant sacrifice. It's going to take generous investment from each of us in the LifePoint Church family. Uh, it's going to require all of us to engage together with unity and intensity. And here's my promise to you in this campaign. No one is going to be strong-armed. No one is going to be manipulated. No one's going to be coerced. Uh, we are going to ask you uh, in full uh, honesty and humility to give generously, to give sacrificially, but no one's going to twist your arm. Um, when we remember that sacrifice is really all about giving up something we love for something we love more, I think it begins to come into perspective. Um, what do I love? Who do I love? What are, what are really the, the priorities and values of my life? Well, this morning, we're beginning a new series of messages based on chapters three and four of the Old Testament book of Joshua. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and begin turning there. I'm praying that, that God will use this series to instruct, to inspire, uh, to encourage us uh, as we embark on this journey of faith together. And so let's stand this morning and read God's word together. Just the first five verses of chapter three. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from the Acacia Grove. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Moses the servant of the Lord, uh, who had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, with many signs and wonders, uh, Moses the judge, Moses the lawgiver, Moses the tabernacle builder, Moses with whom God spoke face to face, Moses who failed in his commission to lead the Israelites to take possession of the promised land, Moses, who then watched over the life of Israel for another 40 years of wandering in the Sinai, was dead. Moses was dead. And before he died, he had witnessed the deaths of the entire generation of those who had come out of Egypt with him. Because due to fear, they had refused to obey God by taking the risks and paying the price to cross over into the land of promise. Not long before his death, Moses commissioned 
his protege, his second in command, Joshua, to succeed him. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8, we read, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In verse 4 of Joshua 3, we read that the Israelites had not passed this way before. What they were about to experience was something entirely new, something different than they had experienced before. Joshua, along with the entire Israelite nation, arrived at the banks of the Jordan River in the spring of the year. Verse 15 indicates that the Jordan was swollen and overflowing its banks. And God brought them to the Jordan precisely at the time of the year when the, when the spring rains and the melting snows that came down from Mount Hermon turned the Jordan River into a torrent. If you saw the Jordan River today, and many of you have been there, some of you have seen pictures, you, you might realistically ask, what's the big deal about crossing that river? Because today, it's usually nothing more than a meandering stream due to dams on the upper river and its, subsidi- or its tributaries, uh, extensive diversion of water from the river for irrigation, But in Joshua's day, none of that was there. In Joshua's day, it was a large and powerful river. In fact, geologists estimate that it might have been up to a mile and a half to two miles wide in some places when the Israelites arrived. Very deep, very swift. So the Israelites were looking at perhaps the most formidable obstacle they had faced in the 40 years of their wandering in the desert. It was an echo of the Red Sea, but even perhaps more daunting for this new generation of Israelites. Humanly speaking, to cross the Jordan during flood time in those days was unthinkable. So the question on everyone's mind must have been the same as maybe the question that's on your mind this morning as you look at this little half sheet and you see the goals that we've set before us. How are we going to get across that? Or in other words, given the, the rushing, raging river between us and the promised land on the other side, how will we get from where we are to where we've never been? Well, go back with me to chapter 1 and notice that following God's commissioning of Joshua in chapter 1, Joshua had wasted no time. He immediately gave this command to the officers of the people. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days... You are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land 
that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And when a short time later they arrived there at the banks of the Jordan, notice what Joshua did not do. Joshua did not request an extension of time in order to wait for the river to subside. He did not request a different route so as to avoid confrontation with the enemy. He didn't appoint a special investigator or call for a special commission or take a vote of the people. Instead, Joshua acted. He led decisively, faithfully, courageously, and obediently. There's a word that's repeated 21 times between Joshua 3.1 and Joshua 5.1, the two chapters that that tell the story of the crossing of the Jordan. Uh, That word is translated pass over or cross over. The word is abar. Will you say that out loud with me? Abar. It's It's a little tiny word with a great big meaning. In the northern part of Italy, there's another river called the Rubicon. You may have heard of it. It flows for about 15 miles into the Adriatic Sea. In in 49 BC, Julius Caesar crossed that river and in so doing, ignited a major civil war. And there's an expression that has come down to us that's still in use today from 49 BC to cross the Rubicon. To cross the Rubicon has become a a metaphor, an idiom for for having passed a point of no return. Uh, Similar to burning your bridges or burning your ships. That's not burning your britches, it's burning your bridges. Burning your ships. Having committed yourself decisively and irreversibly in a certain direction. And that expression, crossing the Rubicon, perfectly captures the thrust of this little word, a bar. It connotes something of epic significance and epic consequence. And because of that, it highlights the the decisive nature of this particular moment in the history of the Hebrew people, and it distinguishes what, what lies ahead from everything that has gone before. The deep rift that forms the the Jordan Valley and the Jordan uh, Riverbed had to be crossed. It had to be crossed in order for them to inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants forever. In our individual lives, there are occasional abar moments, aren't there? The same is true in the life of a faith community. Whether we're talking about the nation of Israel or LifePoint Church. Decisive moments of great consequence that call us to take great risks that are rooted in faith Many people, and in fact many churches, come to those moments and respond 
in fear and unbelief. And because of that, they never cross over. They never pass over into the inheritance of the promises and the blessings of God. Others respond with courage that's driven by faith and vision. See, unbelief says, let's go back to where it's safe, where there's not a lot required of us. But faith says, let's go forward to where God is working and join him there. A bar times usually confront us with challenging obstacles. They, they usually confront us with major difficulties. And it's for that reason that they become such opportune times for God to demonstrate his power. See, I believe that, that we, LifePoint Church, are arriving at just such a moment. Uh, we as pastors and elders believe that it's time to take decisive action. We've never passed this way before. But we are united in our conviction that God would have us move forward in faith in spite of, or maybe because of, the daunting nature of the challenge. Verses 3 to 5 contain three commands and reveal three essential insights for a time like this. I'd like to, just to see them and, and to reflect on them uh, in the days and weeks to come as a congregation. They, they form the foundation, I think, of our understanding of what God wants us to hear from these two chapters. First of all, in verse 3, they were to see the ark and follow it. They were to see the ark and follow it. The officers commanded the people as soon as, would you underline that in your Bible? As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Let me just repeat that. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Next to the word abar, the word that repeats most frequently in these two chapters is the word ark. It appears 17 times, 10 times in chapter 3, 7 times in chapter 4. The main character, really, in this entire story is represented by the ark. What was the ark? Well, it was actually just a box, 54 inches long, not very long at all, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide. You've received boxes from FedEx larger than that. Your coffee table at home may be larger than that. The ark was made of acacia wood and covered in pure gold. On either side of the top of the ark were those two cherubim or those, those two angels facing each other with their wings covering the top. And the Bible says touching each other, which is not represented in the, in the uh, picture you're seeing. The the top of the ark or the, the lid 
um, was referred to as the mercy seat, the atonement cover. Inside the ark were the stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments and a, a jar of the manna by which God had nourished his people during their wilderness wanderings. In the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant rested in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. Once a year, and only once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. It's the only time anyone went into that part of the tabernacle. Before he entered, he had to undergo ritual consecration, ritual cleansing, which means he took a bath, uh, he put on a clean robe, then he would put on the, the ephod that marked him as the high priest. He would make sacrifice for his own sins. When he entered the Holy of Holies, he had bells on the bottom of his robe. He had a jar of blood in his hand and he had a rope around his ankle. The rope provided a way for the other priests to haul him out if for some reason he had improperly prepared himself and so was struck dead in the presence of a holy God. Assuming that didn't happen, you know, actually what they would do is they'd listen for the bells. The bells stopped jingling. They couldn't make verbal contact. They just yarded him out. I don't know if it ever happened, but they were ready. Assuming that didn't happen, the high priest would take that blood, the blood of a sacrificed animal, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Atonement, at one meant. To be made at one with God through the, the sacrifice of blood. The Ark of the Covenant then was the symbol of the presence and the power of God among the people of God. The ark went before the people to lead them. It went before the people to show them the way that they should go. And while they were in the wilderness, you remember, if, you're, if you know the story, God had led them with a cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night. As we come to this point in the history of Israel's progress, that cloud and that pillar of fire seem now to be gone. There's no more mention of either of them. So in addition to being the symbol of God's presence and power, the ark now becomes the symbol or the vehicle of God's leadership. God was leading the Israelites by a new way and in a new way. And in a very real sense, the ark created the way. How many of you have experienced in your life that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Amen. Remember the command in verse 3. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, 
of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. They needed to have an attitude of responsiveness to the leadership of Joshua and his officers, but even more basically to to God's leadership by means of the ark. They had to keep their eyes on him, which meant that they had to follow the ark as it was carried by the priests. Next, observe this in verse 4, that they were to keep a distance between themselves and the ark. It's a curious thing, isn't it? They were to keep a distance. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Um, If you're of a certain age, the question what's a cubit, has particular resonance with you. Cubit was roughly 18 inches, which means that as the ark went ahead of them, they were to keep a distance of 3,000 feet. Well, that's the length of nine football fields if you include the end zones. Why such a distance? Some historians estimate that the population of the Israelite nation at the time of Joshua could have been as many as 2.5 million. That's a lot of Israelites. And that's a lot of livestock. And that's a lot of baggage. In order for that many people to, to be able to even see the ark and follow it over unfamiliar terrain might have necessitated a separation between the ark and the procession but of course, there's also the recognition that of the utter holiness of God that was also represented by the Ark of the Covenant. There needed to be an attitude of reverence, reverence maintained among the people. See, when you and I forget the holiness of God, when we are excessively familiar with him, when we are excessively casual and therefore undisciplined in our approach to him, undisciplined in our worship, undisciplined in our service, we dishonor him. There needs to be in the, among the people of God a sense of reverence toward God. Finally, they were to consecrate themselves. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Today, as New Testament people, we often think of consecration as something God does to us. But there's a participative process in this process of consecration, of being sanctified, of being set apart to God's purpose, which is what consecration actually means. It means to be set apart for God's holy purpose, to be uniquely his, and therefore purified, dedicated fully to him. In ancient times, the external ritual act of consecration involved, first of all, bathing. It's always a good idea to take a bath. Putting on a clean set of clothes. And for married couples, abstaining for a period of time from sexual activity so that they could devote themselves fully to the Lord, mind, body, and spirit. 
But to consecrate ourselves implies also something that takes place internally. Internally as well as externally. And it involves self-examination. It involves confession of known sin, repentance of known sin, offering ourselves up to God's scrutiny, offering ourselves up to God's examination. So that as we come to him, we say, Lord, here, here are the sins that I'm, I'm conscious of in my life. And I'm confessing them to you. And I'm taking time to do a thorough examination of, of who I am, what I've done, what I've thought, what I've said that is contrary to your will. And Lord, I'm confessing those and I'm asking for your help to repent of those sins. But then we come to God and we say, God, you, you see me far better than I see myself. You, you see the deepest parts of who I am. And you see the sin that's down deep. And Lord, would, would you reveal that to me as well? Would you show me, Lord, where I am uh, not pleasing you in my life? The psalmist captured the theme in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, when he prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, just, just do a full scan of, of all that I am. In Psalm 51, David wrote, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, God is looking for consecrated followers. He's always looking for people who have a heart for him, who really belong to him, who are humbled before him, whose hearts belong to him. Why? Because the wonders of tomorrow depend on the consecration of today. You believe that? The wonders of tomorrow depend on the consecration of today. There's another place in scripture that says that the eyes of the Lord are, are looking to and fro throughout the whole earth in order to prove himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. The wonders of tomorrow depend on the consecration of today. Israel's experience of the wonders would result from their readiness to allow God to work in his way by his power in and through their lives. So how will we as a church get from where we are to where we've never been? We've never passed this way before. Well, forgive me for being redundant, but let me just suggest our success, first of all, in getting from where we are to where we've never been will depend most basically on our responsiveness to God's leadership. Our willingness, our responsiveness to, to step out from our tents the moment we see him on the move. Second Chronicles 
20 records a prayer of King Jehoshaphat. Uh, Israel is at war. And at verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20 is this amazing statement. In the midst of his prayer, he says, we are powerless. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that beautiful? We are powerless. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I will be very honest with you. That's exactly the way I feel as we stand here at the threshold of Vision Next, of this three-year initiative. Never been this way before. We've never done anything like this. I've never led anything like this. And I'm standing before the Lord saying, I'm powerless. (laughs) I don't know what to do. But oh God, help me keep my eyes fixed on you. So that ought to describe all of us, I think, in humility and expectation that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he says go, we need to be ready to go. Uh, You and I know Christians who, who need a roadmap, they need a a complete list of every possible eventuality, Um, you know, a full list of all the rest stops along the freeway, assurance of AAA roadside assistance in case of disaster before they'll set out in obedience to God. And God says, look, just keep your eyes on me. Follow me. I'll make sure you arrive safely on the other side if you will follow me, if you will consecrate yourself and follow me. And here's my confidence. I believe that he didn't bring us this far to leave us. And I believe that that he who began a good work in Life Point Church will be faithful to complete it as we follow him. So let's do that, shall we? Shall we follow him? Can't hear you. All right. We're right behind you, Jim. Way behind you, but we're behind you. Secondly, our success in getting from where we are to where we've never been will depend on our reverence for God's holiness. You know, I think perhaps the greatest thing that could happen to LifePoint Church is that we are overcome with a sense of the utter holiness of God. And that we would regain a heart of humble brokenness before him. That's got to be the foundation of all of this, friends that we are broken before him, that we're humble before him, that we, that we are exalting him. We're not asking him to exalt us, but we are exalting him. And I think if that were to happen, I, I, I'm just convinced that our worship, our service, our fellowship, our, our marriages and families, the stewardship of our finances, the conduct of our daily lives would be distinctly different from the surrounding culture. I think there would be regular confession of sin, that there would be repentance, that we would see lives being really transformed, that there would be frequent baptisms, that people would be coming to faith in Christ, that we would see God at work in ways that previously we could only imagine because he would be pleased to bless us and to use us. 
if there's anything that we learn from the opening chapters of the book of Revelation is that a church has to qualify for God's blessing. Third, our success in getting from where we are to where we've never been will depend on our readiness to be used for God's purpose. And by that, I mean our spiritual preparation, our consecration. We sometimes wonder why it is that God seems to work more freely, more powerfully, more frequently through others than he does through us. And, and maybe it's this. Maybe it's because we haven't taken his holiness as seriously as we ought. Maybe it's because we haven't taken his holiness seriously enough to consecrate ourselves, that we would be ready and available, equipped, perfected for his use. Because all of us want to experience the miracle but we don't want to pay the price of genuine consecration. If you study the lives of men and women in history who have been greatly used by God, you'll discover that they all have two things in common, an uncommon belief in the promises of God, confidence in his promises, combined with a determination to do his will. Their faith wasn't a passive feeling, but an active force. They were men and women of faith, and God honored them because they took him at his word and they acted on it. As we saw last week, faith is acting as if what God says is actually true. May that be true of us. This journey is not a financial journey. This journey is a spiritual journey. I hope that you'll reflect on that in the days to come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Your word says that everything that was written in times past was written for our instruction that we might receive the promises of God. And Lord, I, I, I pray as we stand here, as I stand here, as we are together in this place before you, Lord, would you have your way in us so that you can have your way through us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who creates the way when there seems to be no way. So we look forward to what you will do. Lord, give us grace to do that self-examination, to submit ourselves to your scrutiny. And then as we realize the enormity of our sin, that we would confess that freely and humbly before you, with hearts willing to repent and be changed. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Perfector, our soon-coming King. Amen.